Hi everyone, I'm your host Angie, and welcome to the 29th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobooks to help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Chantelle Pratt. She's a professor at the University of Washington, with appointments in the departments of psychology, neuroscience and linguistics. Her book titled The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours, is a rollicking adventure into the human brain that reveals the surprising truth about neuroscience, shifting our focus from what's average to an understanding of how every brain is different, exactly why our quirks are important, and what this means for each of us. With style and wit, Chantal Pratt takes us on a tour of the meaningful ways that our brains are dissimilar from one another. Using real-world examples, along with take-them-yourself tests and quizzes, she shows us how to identify the strengths and weaknesses of your own brain, while learning what might be going on in the brains of those who are unlike you. With sections like Focus, Navigate and Connect, the neuroscience of you helps us to see how brains are engineered differently, ultimately take diverse paths when it comes to prioritise information, use what they've learned from experience and relate to other people, and so much more. It was great discussing the book with Chantal. I hope you enjoyed the episode. to start off firstly by asking how does the functionality of the brain depend on the environment and context it's operated in? So I think one of the big points I make in the book is that I don't think we can talk about how functional a particular way of being is without considering the problem that we're trying to solve or the information that we're asking our brain to consider. So I'm really glad you asked me that question because I feel personally like in today's day and age, we have a very narrow set of conditions that we use to evaluate success. You know, how do you function in the office? How do you function in a traditional school setting, relying heavily on printed materials and things like this? And we don't consider how much information processing, how many different kinds of problems the brain solve, how narrow this specific environment is in which we decide something is good or bad. So I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about motor skills, motor programming. And the scientists made this really, I think, valid point. It's a way better way of describing this than what I'm doing by saying that We have artificially intelligent computers that can beat the world's experts as chess, like no problem. But we don't have a robot that can move a chess piece with the facility of a five-year-old. So we take for granted the skill and the problem solving that goes into sort of manual dexterity or navigating the world or being sensitive to changes in the environment. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is that human brains are multidimensional biological systems with different ways of being. And human beings are multidimensional behaving creatures that have lots of different kinds of problems to solve. And I think in order for us to talk about whether any particular way of being is functional or dysfunctional, we have to think about what it is that we're asking this brain to do. 
in what context might this be functional? In what context might this be dysfunctional? So that's one probably very long answer to your question, but it's even more complicated than that because I think the context shapes the brain, right? And we know this, but I just don't think the average person can appreciate how malleable our brains are and how one of the most quintessentially common things about the human brain is that rather than being born with a bunch of hardwired ways of being, we're born with powerful learning devices that allow us to adapt to our particular environment, our particular context, like river rocks, you know, the river runs through and it shapes us. And so our brains become specialized to understand and operate in the context we inhabit. We adapt to our environments and our lifetime of experiences. And because of that, no two brains are alike. It really is true that no two brains are alike and that your brain is particularly well-suited to understand and make decisions for you <laughs> based on what it expects from your lifetime of experiences. Absolutely. And speaking of context, I think you mentioned the London cab drivers. Oh, to I love bring that point home as always. Well, oh, it? I love that. Yeah. I'm sure your listeners have to be familiar with this story to some extent, or at least part of it, right? Because it's so beautiful. I try and say different doesn't have to mean better or worse. And then I make the caveat, hey, I was born before the everyone gets a trophy generation. It's not like I'm just trying to be facetious here and say, no, your brain is good at things too. It's really true. I mean, our brains have been evolving in the vertebrate form for hundreds of millions of years. If these ways of being survived, they're good at something, right? And I think the London cab drivers who became temporarily famous because they have these larger parts of the brain, the anterior part of the hippocampus, which is important for storing spatial memories, which we then found out were not something that they were born with, but that resulted from these thousands of hours of studying that it takes to memorize this test called the knowledge that has all of the roadmaps of the greater London area. And they study for this for years. Only half pass the test. And those that do pass the test at the end of their studying basically cram so much information into this part of the brain that it's increased in volume. And that was only part of the story. So like if you said, oh, would I like to have a better memory? Would I want to have a bigger ability to sort of remember locations or something? Many people would say yes. But Eleanor McGuire and her colleagues did these longitudinal follow-up studies that allow us to really dig into that. And not only did they find that the area right behind that region in the hippocampus had shrunk, they found that there were costs and benefits to the memory systems of these London cab drivers. So in a brilliant, literal head-to-head -head study, what they did was compared the cognitive abilities, the learning and memory abilities of London's cab drivers with another group that operates in a very similar context. We're talking about context, right? And that's bus drivers. So both cab drivers and bus drivers need to navigate in these busy London streets, navigate a moving vehicle, avoid collisions and so forth and so on. But bus drivers on average, first of all, bus drivers don't have to take that knowledge test. And second of all, they're driving 
some limited number of routes over and over. They're not navigating infinitely different number of places. And what she showed was that while cab drivers outperformed the bus drivers on tests that were relevant to these skills that they had trained their brain for, so things like recognizing familiar landmarks in London or estimating how far apart two places on these memorized maps would be, they underperformed bus drivers in the ability to form new memories about different non-spatial things. So I think there was one object tracing task and even one that had like, remember a list of words. So their brains had become fine-tuned to this incredible task that they had asked them to do. They had stuffed it full of all this map knowledge, but there was a cost to it, right? That information had crowded out parts of the brain that take in and remember new information, particularly that wasn't about spatial locations. And still, there were a number of tests that both groups performed equally well on. So things like remembering stories or recognizing faces, that would be part of everybody's daily living. So I think it would be hard for you to convince me that objectively, irrespective of the job you have to do, remembering the distance between two locations or being able to navigate versus remembering lists of things or being able to draw an object from memory, like one of these things is not necessarily better than the other. It's all about what you're asking your brain to do. And it is training itself, it is specializing for that job you ask it to do, but there are costs. Something has to go. The thing is quite highly optimized. And if you strengthen something, I think that there are a lot of cases in which it's gonna crowd something else out. Why is it important to look at the brain's computation to then understand its function? And what is the distinction between the two? Oh my gosh, you're asking amazing questions. I want to recruit you for graduate school, but it seems as though you've already had another career. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, No, that's such a good question. And also makes me feel, um, I think that I tried to make my book very accessible to people who don't study the brain but I also wanted it to be incredibly accurate. And this computation function distinction is something that drives me nuts and that I think a lot of neuroscientists don't report well. But I also think, oh, this is maybe like a detail that's in the weeds that the average person won't care about. So I'm so thankful that you asked this. Most of the things that you will read in a popular press article or even a textbook will point to a part of a brain and ascribe it a function like, vision or language or maybe something more specific color vision motion detection speech production object recognition these are functions this is the job that a particular brain area is involved in but this sort of divide and conquer or mapping of functions in the brain approach is really misleading in several ways first For almost anything in the world that you're interested in studying, there's many regions of the brain involved. Our brain, and I'll tell you why when it comes to computations, all of the things I mentioned, object recognition and speaking and and so forth and so on, they involve many different parts of the brain. Very few things are truly localized. It depends on how specific you're talking about. But And many, many, many parts of the brain actually contribute to multiple functions. 
So you say, for instance, Broca's area in the left hemisphere has largely been described as something that is involved in speaking, but it's also involved in all kinds of sequential things. It's involved in comprehending music experts. It's involved in understanding who is giving and who is receiving in an action that is observed. It's involved in understanding that the boy kissed the girl is different than the girl kissed the boy based on the order of the words. And this is because if you want to understand how the brain works, really, importantly for what I care about, if you want to understand how different brains work, what you really want to know is why did that part of the brain get that job? Right? And that's where you get to computations. Because at the end of the day, our brain is this massively connected set of individual neurons. The neurons all over the brain perform essentially the same function. They use different chemical languages to communicate. And the way that that function gives rise Now I'm talking about the function of a neuron, which is confusing because I'm not talking about the function that it performs in the world like language. But the way that that individual neuron contributes to your information processing, whether it becomes involved in hearing or seeing or language, is related to who it's talking to, who it gets inputs from and who it gets outputs from, and what the patterns of connectivity are like and what chemical languages they speak. And so different parts of the brain are better or worse suited for different jobs based on the computations they perform. What do they do with the inputs and outputs that they take in? So I can give you a really hopefully not too complicated example by talking about the computations or one of the proposals for how computations work in the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. So connectivity of the neurons in the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain seems to be very different in most people, especially strongly right-handed people. In the left side of the brain, what we get are small, tightly connected groups of neurons that accomplish some very specialized job, basically in a module or a pipeline. They take an input and they perform a series of really well-specified transformations and they give you an output. This is good for something like language that happens really fast. It can take a series of speech sounds and transform them into a word, match that word to a meaning, match a sequence of meanings to a what a sentence means and so forth and so on. A bunch of different modules, kind of input, output. They don't talk to one another. They don't consider what's going on around them to do their jobs. They're just kind of informationally encapsulated, taking inputs and putting outputs. That's a computation. So when I said this is really well suited for language, I said if you've got a computation like this, a module, expert, highly informationally encapsulated module, it can be better suited for one job or another. That kind of a module is not very good at face processing, for instance. And if you don't believe me, try looking at some pictures of your friends and identifying them based on one eye or an eyebrow, or even a nose, if they don't have a very distinguishing feature, like maybe your friend has really nice dimples or teeth or something and you would recognize them anywhere, for the most part, when we're recognizing a face, we don't look at one specific piece of information. We look at a big pattern. And that's where the right hemisphere's computations come in really handy because the right hemisphere 
is massively interconnected. It's more of a pattern detecting kind of computation. It's not as fast as these information encapsulated modules. Instead, it considers the context of what's going on around it. There's a lot of information coming together in one place. And it's saying, hey, have I seen this before? Have I done something like this before? Do I recognize the situation I'm in? So that's really good for things like face processing, for navigating, for problem solving when you're in a brand new situation that you don't have any expert modules set up for. So that's, in essence, the difference between a computation, sort of what kind of information processing is happening at the neural level in the brain, and a function. That's what job is that part of the brain being asked to do? What problem is it being asked to solve? And most people talk about brains as if there's a region of the brain that is designed to do a function, and this is almost never the case. In fact, I want to talk about some of the exercises you included in the book, which was a very nice touch and it allowed the book to be very interactive. The audio book comes with a accompanying text. And I actually learned a couple of things about myself, one being that my brain is definitely lopsided. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, but how important was it for you to include these exercises in the book for the reader or listener to allow it to help them understand themselves as well? It was essential. I have always been interested in understanding the relationship between the mind and the brain at the level of the individual. Since I got into neuroscience as an undergraduate, this has been the thing that captivated me. And it's impossible for me to, I mean, it's very difficult for me to understand how people could know themselves without understanding how their brain works, especially because there's so much going on in there that you're not consciously aware of, right? So the problem is that I don't have access to your brain. When I'm studying people in the lab, I get to watch their brains work in all of these different and wonderful ways and then watch the way that they think and problem solve and learn and make associations between these things. But we don't yet have the technology to send you home with your own brain scanning devices. I think that that will be coming soon, at least for some kinds of technology. And I didn't just want to tell people how different brains work. Like I wanted to be able to give you some insights into how your brains work. Thankfully, there is a bunch of research that will let you sort of reverse engineer your brain, right? Like at the end of the day, if you don't have access to a direct recording of your brain, you do have a lot of access to its outputs, whether it be in some personality features or your pattern of handedness, like you were talking about lopsided brains. You know, many people don't realize that handedness is not a dichotomous variable. It's a continuum. And until you start to try and do strange things with the different halves of your body, you don't really know whether you're pretty balanced or very, very lopsided to one or the other side and what that might tell you about the different computations of your brain. Why did your right hand or left hand get the job? What are the computations that we need to manipulate to do fine motor skills? And what might that tell you about something as distantly removed as your personal narrative? How do you make sense and connect the dots between the sequences of events in your life? And it was not always easy. Like in the ADAPT chapter, I'm really talking about how your life experiences shape the way you perceive the world and connect the dots. And I use language experience as a model for this because I've done a lot of work on bilingualism. But of course, I could write a whole book saying, how often do you have this experience? How many countries have you tried? I mean, you know, it'd be really hard to get an index of what somebody's life experiences are and get an idea of what their brain has adapted to. So sometimes it was harder than others, but 
it's called the neuroscience of you for a reason. You know, I, who have been doing neuroscience for 25 plus years, still learned a lot about myself when I wrote it. So there was a lot of me search going on in the writing. And so that was my goal is to help people understand themselves through this lens that I use to understand the mind and brain. In Mixology, you mentioned how the brain interprets incomplete information of the world, but also how our experience of reality is created by our brains. Could you touch on how this is possible, Chantelle? It's necessary. <laughs> it's not even... And the truth is, my why for writing the book is wrapped up in this gap between our personal, subjective experience of reality and the objective, ostensibly knowable external world out there. I think we're living through a social paradox in which people are more and more talking about the value of diversity and having people from different backgrounds in our decision-making spaces, but have not necessarily acquired the tools for understanding people whose brains work differently. So I spent eight of the nine chapters of my book trying to explain the gap between the world as you experience it and the world as it exists. And you said, how is this possible? Well, it is necessary because we exist in an infinite and continuously changing physical universe. But our brains, even though they're very powerful, are finite and they sample the world in discrete, bite-sized chunks. So this perception we have, you know, you look around you and you feel like you're in a movie or that your eyes are taking in the world as though they're a video camera. But this is absolutely 100% illusion. Your brain is connecting the dots to create the illusion that you have full knowledge of what's happening around you so that you're not confused all the time so that you can make decisions. I mean, even if our brains were 860 billion neurons large and we could take in 10 times the amount of information and would need to connect the dots less, if that were the case, the information processing that would take place would be so onerous that by the time you understood the world, 15 seconds would have passed, right? So, you know, we, our brains are inference. They're inference generators. They, they take in incomplete information. They fill in the blanks all the time. And so I talk about the example, which I've since learned was really only famous in America and not other places in the world, this internet sensation called The Dress, which took the Americans by storm, at least. We knew about The Dress as well, honestly. Oh, you did? Okay, okay. <laughs> I thought so, but I actually was doing an interview with Nature Journal, mm. and they were like, that didn't happen to us. And I was like, really? <laughs> so maybe it was just that person. Chantal, The Dress was huge over here. I knew straight okay. away when I heard you know, it, honestly. Okay, good. Because, you know, here you go. This is me egocentric, right? Like, what? Everybody doesn't know about the dress. So this is great. So this is, again, like one British person or somebody else saying, I didn't hear this, so nobody did, right? <laughs> there we go, adapting to our own realities. So yeah, so I start with the dress as this example that, you know, we can't agree about whether the dress is blue and black or white and gold. And this is something that we all have learned at some point, color 
is related to wavelengths of light. Like this feels like it has a one-on-one correspondence with physical energy in the world. And if you have trichromatic color vision, how can we be disagreeing about the color of the dress? And I can tell you because I sat with one of my brightest and most open graduate students. We were at a conference and I sat in front of my computer. I was writing the book. She was reading the introductions and she just pulled up the dress. She saw white and gold. I saw blue and black. And she was looking at the desktop on my computer and pointing and saying, this is blue. And I said, yes, I know this is blue. This is not blue. I'm like, yes, this is blue. But, you know, like, let's make sure we have convergence about what the definition of blue is. And what that example illustrates is that the reality that your brain constructs is convincing. Like, that's the only truth you experience. And also that different brains construct different versions of that reality, right? Like even something as elementary as the color of a dress. And vision researcher Pascal Wallace showed that a little bit of what makes people um, see the dress differently. So for one thing, there's no context in that picture. So the information that your brain uses to make inferences about the colors of things has been clipped. What happens is without that context, with less complete information, your brain uses its previous experiences to figure out what the lighting is like in that picture. So it turns out that people who are larks or morning people who spend more time awake when the sun is out are slightly more likely to see the dress as white and gold. This is because they think it's in a shadow. Their brain, not they, their brain, without informing their conscious mind, decides that the dress is in a shadow and so it subtracts out the blue and black, which is actually present in the dress because the dress is blue and black. It does that for them and they see white and gold. My graduate student saw white and gold because her brain had decided it was in a shadow. Was people who are night owls or who spend more time in artificially lit places, their brains are more likely to assume it's lit from above. And so it doesn't make any such subtraction. And so this is something that you experience and you can get the feeling of like surrealness that how could you not see this dress as blue and black or how could you not see this dress as white and gold? That gives you a concrete way into this idea that, hey, your brain is making stuff up. (laughs) It just is. It has to. It works most of the time. But there is a gap between your reality and the reality. And your brain is making its best guess based on your experiences. So if I can take the reader through all of the different ways that different genetics, different environments, you know, different neurochemistry, different diets, like, you know, a lot of different things influence the way that your brain processes the world. Can that just get you a little bit less convinced that your way of seeing the world is the right way or the only way and at least get you a little bit more curious about a different perspective and where that might come from. I thought your chapter adapt was interesting because Once one becomes an adult, it's quite hard to accept that we are not as willing to learn new things and that our brains create shortcuts. Again, there was a brilliant little test that you did there that made an example of this, which brought home the point. And you also highlighted why it's hard for us to do better when we know better. So Chantal, would you mind explaining this and mentioning the horse and rider analogy that you mentioned in the book? 
a lot of what I'm talking about here are things that your brain does quickly and automatically without you having any conscious awareness of. And I think that although we can learn all kinds of new things and use those things to guide our decisions, I think that people are largely unaware of how rare or how little of our behavior is actually driven by our explicit conscious awareness. So these are two control systems that I call horse and rider in the brain. So I use this analogy because I am an equestrian, so it really works for me, but I hope it works for other people too. So the horse is our implicit way of knowing things. It's this early automatic information processing that is incredibly sophisticated and informed, again, by all of our previous experiences. Most behaving animals on the planet exist only with this kind of moving toward things that are good and moving away from things that are bad without any explicit deliberation. Trial and error, right? For any context, is a word that you started this discussion with that I really love, for any context that you might be inhabiting, your horse understands that there are a series of actions that it might take. And it has a representation of how successful it thinks these different actions will be based on your previous experiences. So if you're somewhere like in your living room, somewhere that you're very familiar with, you have a lot of experiences with all the different things you can do in your living room and how likely those are to lead you to success in terms of this is something that feels rewarding to my brain. Most behaving animals exist only with that, and it works quite well. But humans have this way of overriding the trial and error with language. And I think this is so wild because when you ask someone what kind of learner they are, when I started writing the book, I started like putting little things on social media or asking my friends, like, how do you learn? What kind of a learner are you? And when we think about how we learn, we almost exclusively think about this different thing that, to the best of my knowledge, only humans can do, and that's to use instructions or language to override this trial and error thing. So humans can say, don't touch the stove because it's hot. And if we're trusting the person who's telling us that message, we can just never touch a stove. We don't ever have to get burnt to learn how to do that. That's what I call the writer. And that's like when you're reading a self-help book or here's 10 ways to hack your brain or how to improve your memory or how to live the most fulfilling life or how to be a wonderful human being or you know, like you're inspired, you read some piece of knowledge and you think, wow, here it is, it's my life hack. Like everything is gonna be different because I have this piece of information. And this is, I mean, I could, I could talk to you for way too long about this human ability because essentially what we can do is reprogram our brains on the fly with language. So I could tell you every time I say the word hemisphere, you can like, I don't know, flap your arms like a chicken. This is where I get to show off how absolutely uncreative I am, <laughs> right? But like I could say that to you and you could do it instantly, there's no pathway in your brain. Never, I hope, I'm willing to bet that never before in your life have you been rewarded for flapping your arms like a chicken when somebody says the word hemisphere. There's nothing in your horse will not think that is a good idea, mm, right? Absolutely. But if I was your hero and I said, hey, the secret to life is like flap your arms like a chicken when somebody says the word hemisphere, you could do it instantly. But you have to hold that in mind and you have to remember it. And that is hard. 
That is effortful because there are very few things that you can hold in mind at any given time. One, two, three, four, depends on how you count, depends on the person. But we all know this is one of the fundamental limits of human information processing, right? When you walk into the kitchen, you're like, what the heck am I doing here? That's because whatever that idea you had to get there between when you left the living room and you got there, it fell out of your working memory, out of your mind, right? So we have this ability to override or reprogram our brains, but it's effortful and it requires protecting that piece of information at the cost of everything else that's competing to control your attention. I call this part of the brain the writer because it can be used to sort of take this automatic system for behaving and reprogram it. Your writer can use your knowledge, your previous experiences, your explicit values to steer your horse away from something that might feel good but be bad for you or be inconsistent with your beliefs. But that takes energy. It's effortful. And if there are other things happening in your brain at once, if you're tired, if you forget, the horse is going to go back to, these are my ways of behaving. This is the one that leads me to success. So I think a lot of our actions are driven by some percentage of the horse and some percentage of the rider. But the story we tell ourselves, the conscious story we tell ourselves about why we behave is the rider plus the rider watching you behave and then making up a story about why you did it, which is fascinating. I think that this is one of the things they've studied this in patients and people who have disconnected consciousness for one reason or another, and they can behave in ways that they're not aware of. But we're all behaving. Some percentage of our behavior, you know, involves something that we're not aware of. My husband is also a neuroscientist. So we ask ourselves, and we've been dating for, I don't know, 15 years and married for 13, but we'll have very deep conversations about who knows who best. And I think most people would say this is uncontroversial. You know yourself better than even your partner knows you, right? Because you're privy to all these internal workings. You know what the writer knows. You know what's driving you. You know what your values are and so forth and so on. But when someone else who knows you well gets to observe your behavior, they watch you behave over and over and over, and they're not necessarily skewed. I think we are skewed. We overrate whatever the writer knows and don't notice the ways we behave that might be inconsistent with what we think we want or what we think we want to do. So on the other hand, the person who is observing you, they see the behavior itself and don't really wait the why. I think it's all very complicated, and a really funny story just to say why knowing better doesn't necessarily lead to doing better because the knowing has to be in your working memory. It has to be energetically protected in every waking moment, which is impossible. Unless you practice, which you should if this thing is important to you, to the point that actually it becomes something that the horse can do on its own, right? Like if your rider decides it doesn't want to take the straight path home, it wants to go the long way around to the left and there's some really great things there and the horse goes that way long enough and experiences the reward, it will start to represent that action in its playbook and go like, yeah, you know, this is shorter, but there's a lot of good stuff over here.
the last thing I'd like to ask you is, when it comes to neuroscience, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems as though there's a lot of emphasis and focus on the prefrontal cortex and not as much on the basal ganglia when that has like a high level of importance as well when it comes to how our brains function as well. Is there any particular reason why this is the case? Some reasons are really idiosyncratic. Like when you make a picture of the brain, you can see the outside of it and that's easy to talk about. And, you know, it shows up in the renderings and, you know, that's like a really pragmatic thing. But also I think, again, remember when I was saying at the beginning of this, how we focus on this really narrow set of context when we say like what's important or what's difficult. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that separates us from our closest genetic evolutionary ancestors and so forth and so on. And the prefrontal cortex is amazing. It's important. And it does a lot of the riding of the brain, right? But if the prefrontal cortex is making the decisions that guide you, the basal ganglia is giving it the information that it thinks is the most important to make those decisions based on. So the basal ganglia is learning and rewiring and turning up the signals that it thinks is relevant in any context and turning down the signals that it thinks is irrelevant. So it's like the behind the scenes setting the prefrontal cortex up for success. And many human researchers don't talk about it. I think perhaps because they think something that's present in reptiles can't be sophisticated, but I would encourage them to try living without it. and see how quickly they would be inflexible and overwhelmed by the kind of information that they have to use to make decisions. That was Chantelle Pratt, author of the book, The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read, or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Chantel for coming on the podcast, and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast, and check out some of the previous episodes if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.